You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, good evening, good afternoon, good morning. Welcome to episode four of Cow Corner. Glenn, how are you? I'm good, thank you, Dan. Feeling a bit rough after Brentford's playoff disappointment last night, which obviously coincided with the most exciting ODI of the, the series, yeah, as these things do. Of course you were distracted. Um, we're here to review the ODI series, England versus Ireland, which finished last night, uh, Tuesday night, and started on Thursday. So all packed in pretty tightly uh all of the Aegeus Bowl all within the bubble we'll get into the sort of weird intricacies of this series later in the podcast but let's quickly have a review of what happened uh this week it feels like an age since the first one started <laughs> um it really does uh the first ODI uh England won by six wickets Ireland were bowled out for 172 England chased that down uh, with six wickets to spare, Sam Billings, 67, and Morgan, 36. A good partnership after the top order collapsed, actually. Uh, speaking of top order collapses, Ireland managed to get themselves to 28 for five before recovering <laughs> to their 172 all out. Uh, second ODI, England by four wickets. Ireland, 212 for nine. So not quite as bad on that occasion. Um, again, little top order collapse. Uh, a James Vince wicket. Uh, and then uh, a good knock from Colin Camper, who was Ireland's man of the series, probably. Mm-hmm. England chased that down, 216 for six. Again, another little wobble, but Sam Billings and David Willey, very usually with the bat, 46 and 47, respectfully. So that gave England uh, a 2-0 lead in the series win. And the third ODI, which finished last night, as we're recording now on Wednesday, Ireland won by seven wickets. A really good ODI, actually, uh, as Glenn said, happened to coincide with the playoff final, but alas. <laughs> um, yeah, a cracking game. England 328 all out after looking like they were going to get something of 400 plus as Morgan and Banton were uh, hitting it to all parts of the ground. Morgan finished with 106, Banton with 58. Uh, useful to run some Willie and Curran uh, down the end of the order meant 328 looks like it would probably be too much for Ireland uh, after their batting displays in the first two ODIs. And then all of a sudden, 
No, it wasn't. They were amazing. And uh, Sterling's 142 and Captain Balburnie's 113 got Ireland over the line with a ball to spare. 329 for three, winning by seven wickets. 2-1 the series win for England, condensed into sort of five days at the Aegeus Bowl. Do England come away feeling good after that, Glenn? What were your thoughts on the series as a whole and what should we take away? That is a great question, a really good starting point, because Dan and I were doing our our pre-podcast notes. And on paper, the first two games are obviously really, really one-sided, heavy England wins. But at the same time, we we showed a lot of frailties, especially in our batting. And I think something I took away, especially from the game yesterday, was our death bowling was nowhere near where it needs to be to win another one day um, International Cup because we we just didn't have the control that we needed, especially under pressure. And it is it is a shame because this was a really interesting series because it's obviously sandwiched in between two tests. So the entire test squad had nothing to do with this. So it was a really good opportunity for younger players such as Tom Banton, who is one of my favorite cricketers in the world as a Somerset fan, to really make their mark on this series and the England team. And to be honest, I don't think any of them really did. I don't think any of them were nearly as consistent enough as we wanted. I think um, you can take a positives from the batting of Billings. He wasn't even meant to be necessarily playing the first game, but he came in as a late substitution due to injury. And he really looked classy. I mean, watching the highlights back last night, he, he knows where the middle of the bat is. And I think he played really nicely and um, gave us the momentum we needed in the lower order. I think the top order of our batting failed too often. And yeah, as I mentioned, the bowling, I just wasn't convinced by. I mean, you've got James Vince coming in with his first with his first <laughs> ODI wicket. That, no, that, that was unbelievable, that was. <laughs> I, I couldn't. When, when when they broke it down on TMS, it made sense. He was a sixth bowler. But watching him trundle in was just a little bit embarrassing for everyone. I, I hated it. What was that all about? It had a very village feel to it because he's so tall. <laughs> he would just like bang it in. A bit gangly, isn't he? I didn't quite know where his <laughs> limbs were off to. And then everything was an absolute half tracker. And that one wicket he got was, I don't know who he got. I can't remember now, but I feel sorry for the guy because that's got to hurt. That's not good. Not good to have on your CV that um, Vince's only ODI wicket. And it looked like it looked like, you know, classic Saturday, Sunday cricket when the good young player goes off to uni and you lose him. And then he comes back to uni after not playing for a couple of months and he kind of ambles in. That was the kind of vibe I got from him. Um, so that was a funny standout. That was one of the stranger takeaways. But yeah, overall, I was kind of disappointed. I think, yeah, we could have we could have done a lot more. And Although, as mentioned, we we did win on paper convincingly in those first two games. The third match really underlined these frailties within the team. And I'm really glad Ireland got a win because they actually did deserve something out of this series. And it was fantastic to see their batting really light up. What was, up until then, a pretty boring series, to be be perfectly honest. Yeah, I I, I agree with pretty much what you said there. I think... I don't. I didn't know this series was coming. In in the whole in the whole build up to cricket returning after after lockdown, this was like it was West Indies, West Indies, West Indies, and then they're like, oh yeah, we've got a little Ireland series over here. I was like, okay, cool, I can dig. And as soon as they fell to twenty eight for five, I turned off and I just I I kept up on TMS and on the text on BBC, and that was about it until yesterday where I watched the end of the game. But yeah, it was very strange. Ireland got a lot of stick in the first two for those two early 
top order collapses. Um, and I feel bad for Ireland because they're, they're in this stage where they're just getting that sort of international recognition, um, where they're now a test playing nation. They're playing all the big boys in the ODIs. They were due to play, I think, New Zealand and maybe Australia as well coming up. And they're, they're at a bit of a, um, a transformation in their team. They've lost all their senior players just as they've started to kind of announce themselves. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of debutants, a lot of young players playing in those first two games. And you could tell they learned something from it. So they've probably taken a huge amount from these two games, um, which is great. But yeah, those first two ODIs were pretty underwhelming. England's batting collapses in both of them were, were so frustrating. If you look at the first yeah. ODI where they were just chasing 172, you know, we ended up, where did we end up? 78 for four uh, when, when Banton was dismissed. And, you know, a couple starts from Roy and Vince. And then, you know, Billings and Morgan got us home. And then the second ODI, again, chasing 212, a really low target for what, we, what we're used to now in ODI cricket. And, you know, 98 for three. Uh, and then 131 for four becomes 137 for six. Uh, that's I think you said it earlier that it, neither of the wins were quite convincing whilst also being a thrashing which is such a, a contradiction in itself isn't it I, like I didn't feel great as an England fan coming out of it but we'd smashed them you know 17 overs left in, in the second ODI and I don't feel great and then and then the third ODI just kind of topped it off and I think picked out a lot of holes in whatever you'd call this ODI squad, which is the second 11, pretty much, bar yes. a few. We'll come on to that later. I'd like to pick apart, we'll come to Ireland in a bit. Could we pick apart a few of the England players that really had a great opportunity here? Let's um, do it. I'd love to. Because, like, you know, three ODIs, you've got to focus on them and you could really make a claim to take a spot away from one of the teams in the test squad. Let's start with James Vince. We spoke about his bowling. Um, that's not what he's in the side for. He's <laughs> batting. Oh, my gosh. 25, 16 and 16 he made in this series. And he hits these gorgeous cover drives. And cricket Twitter's great for this sort of banter. And he hits these beautiful drives. And then he'll nick off. And he's, he's played 41 games now in an England shirt across all the formats. And um, he just nicks off constantly. You know, that's got to be it for him. You know, it is, it's interesting because we said... I think following our first podcast, when he did have a final chance in that in that test team, we said that's probably that's probably it, at least for the time being for him. And I think we were right. And there was a kind of consensus in the England cricket community that the test form, he's done this too many times. And he's only gone and carried that <laughs> back into the ODI team. And it's just deeply frustrating. He is one of those players that you want to do well. He's As we've discussed, as everyone knows, he's gorgeous to watch. No one can hit a cover drive quite as crisp as him. But he gets out the same way. He actually mixed it up. He treated us to some variation by being bowled by Camper in the second. Uh, oh, one was an, an inside edge. So one nick, one inside edge, one bowled. So, yep. you know. He, yeah, so he's showing us his variety there. But no, right. it's 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 endlessly frustrating. And I don't really know what to do with him now. Do you think, Dan, that it's a, do you think it's fair to say it could be a mental block when he gets into the 20s? He, he did, Do you think he has a little look at the scoreboard and he thinks, right, this is it. I've done this so many times. I am just not going to nick off. I'm, I'm going to really keep a straight bat and leave leave stuff outside off. But, but then it's just a mechanism within his batting. He just can't resist it. What should, is there any is there any saving him at this point? No, there's no saving him. He's he's done. Uh, take him out of the oven. He's cooked. <laughs> I, 
think to your question whether it's a mental block or a technical thing, I think it's a strong mixture of the two. I yep. think he wouldn't be nicking off this much if he didn't bat in a certain way and he didn't look for the drive so often. Um, and then I also think, yeah, he might look up and go, right, I've got myself another start. A, a bit Denley-ish in more that Denley was LBW and bold as Vince is to nicking off. That They get a score. Uh, and I don't, I don't know. I've, I've not played international cricket. I haven't played cricket for years. Here I am telling him he's done. <laughs> but yeah, I just think his technique isn't quite there. And the amount of times he's done it at international level suggests that if you're an international bowler, you put it in the same place with Vince and you're happy for him to hit you for eight or 12 off, off three cover drive, two or three cover drives, he will nick off at some point. So it's probably technical. It's probably mental as well. And I think England have given him plenty of opportunities. And it is such a shame because he's such a gorgeous player to watch, to watch back when he's in, when he's in Nick. And this was his home stadium. He plays for Hampshire. Um, and this was his chance to have three ODIs on his home ground against weak opposition. And he hasn't scored more than 25. So I don't think there's any, any argument for him after this yeah it's a real tough one <laughs> and I realized I was getting uh Vince and Denley mixed up when I was talking earlier which kind of really speaks to the similarities <laughs> between the two I was like was that Vince in the in the in the previous test series but I really feel like they have very very similar attributes they both play beautifully they're easy on the eye but they both really get stuck in the 30s 20s 30s and can't get out of it um yeah it was it was a a deep frustration for me and yeah I think that's probably probably about it for him both both aesthetically pleasing though as well those two bats and they look so organized and they've got England written all over them you know you pop them back in the county game and they'll eat up some of these young county bowlers but there's just that it's Cameron Jerome syndrome if we're talking football if we're talking yep. championship to Premier League great in the championship can't score in the Prem I think Denley and Vince are a criminal of that um, should we talk about the bloke who came in for the injured Joe Denley, who was probably due to play, wasn't he? Um, before, yes. Yeah, back spasms that ruled him out of the entire series. Again, I'm surprised Denley's in there, but that's a conversation for a different podcast. Uh, <laughs> Sam Billings um, sort of came into his own here. I feel like, you know, he's England's nearly man. We're so deep in one day batting that when, when the players in the test squad are, are available for one day um, selection, he just doesn't really get a look in. A really important 67 in the first ODI. That came with 54 balls, although time wasn't really an issue. A great partnership with Morgan. And in the second ODI, more of the same, a little collapse. And he comes in at five and, and sees it out with, with David Willey this time. What were your thoughts on him? I, I haven't seen him bat that much, really. Um, he's Kent's captain when he when he does play for them. You know, he's been around the England set for what feels like a, a long time. Yep. You know, what do you think for him? What, what do you think for his future going in the ODI and potentially testing? So I'm a really big fan of him. So he's he's had some issues with injuries. Um, he was out for a couple of months in, in April 2019 with a shoulder injury that really affected um, the previous season. And that was a shame. I think he is a really positive batsman. He he always looks to, to make runs. He finds spaces and he really hits the ball cleanly. I really like him. I think it's very fortuitous in a way that the way he came into the team, because looking at, you know, Roy Bairstow, Vince Denley, that doesn't Ugh. really inspire a huge <laughs> amount of confidence. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for his scores. You know, I think it was a match winning 67 in the first game. His 46 not out in the second match really carried us to the finish line. And although he only got 19 in the third game, again, he was looking to attack. Very healthy scoring rates um, through, throughout all of his innings. Yeah, I think he really is one to keep in the fold. I think 
yeah, he he has been in danger of being overlooked for, you know, we've got, as you mentioned, an abundance of batting, especially in this one day team. And he has had his injury problems. But if he can keep this up, if he if he can keep scoring in the in the domestic one day cup, I think he's got every chance of pushing into the team. And for me, he was probably do you think it's fair to say he was the standout batsman well, for the first two games? Yeah, easily standout batsman. He just he was one of them that that looked in Nick and whether he'd been netting more than some of the other batsmen. A lot of the batsmen, as they were saying on the Sky commentary, looked in April form. You know, we are in August now, but there's been no season. So a lot of these batsmen are uh, as they would be in April when the season started. I think you can say that of Roy, uh, probably Banton, definitely Moeen, who I'd like to come on to later. And Billings looked like he was just in good nick. And when he looks in good nick, he looks really good. There was chat of him going into the test team. And I'd like to chat about that briefly. And I think England have got a real problem with a player playing good white ball cricket and immediately thinking, yes, perfect. He's our new number three or our new opener or our new number six in the test in test cricket. Uh, you know, when Roy opened in the Ashes last year, that just looks insane now, doesn't it? When we see Sibley and Burns, you know, now opening the batting both coming from good county runs and never playing a one-day game. Yeah, I'd, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be worried about putting him in the test team. I think that's only, that's only, you know, whispers. It's not something I'm actually looking at. But as for the ODI team, um, we'll come to this later about whether, you know, people can maintain their positions. Would he push out a root or a Stokes? Oh God, definitely not a Stokes. You know, would he push out one of those middle-order batsmen that, that won the World Cup for us? That's a cracking question. Not at the minute. I think you need to do. You need a hundred against Ireland if you're going to push out mm-hmm. one of the established, um, one of the established batsmen. I really like your question about the Test team. So he's got a first-class average of 34, which is you know it's healthy enough, but it doesn't scream pick me. He's also a wicketkeeper, which is really interesting. And I think England really do have a lot. <laughs> I've never known an England team that has this many quality wicketkeepers. Just off the top of my head, we've got Bairstow, Butler, Billings, Tom Banton keeps. I'm sure there's someone else who I've forgotten. Ollie Pope, Ollie Pope, that was the one. That's, that's another one. There's all these like middle order, but middle order batsmen that could probably come in as just batsmen, and they do. You know, if Bairstow had got injured at any point over that ODI series, there's three or four of them queuing up out there ready to, to, to put the gloves on. Exactly. I mean, there's yeah, exactly. There's a line coming out of the dressing room for gloves. <laughs> and I really think you're right there. I've never known England to have so many excellent keeper batsmen who bat really aggressively do you think it's fair to say dan they all have quite a similar style they're all quite aggressive really really um attacking one day batsmen i think pope is a little bit different i think as we said in the previous podcast he's more in the in the ian bell mold of a mm. thinking batsman mm. but i mean banton and butler you can see the somerset influence in the, in the way they take the game to the bowlers they don't wait around mm. yeah i think i think there's a case for for him, if I, I would like him to continue playing, um, especially like before before the World Cup um, comes up, I'd like to see more Billings in this England team. I think he deserve he, he's made a good account of himself. But to answer your question directly, no, it, the minute he's not pushing anyone out of the team. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. Keep him around the squad. Give him a few games if you can. You know, we are at the start of the four year cycle for um, trying to defend our World Cup in 2023. If that happens, or if the ICC bring it forward and put two world cups in one year why not um but yeah we're at the start of that so definitely keep him around should we come on to tom banton uh we we, we briefly mentioned him there up at number f- uh, down at number four actually he's an opener really um at somerset he'll open so 
he found himself at four in all three games this this series. 11 in the first game, 15 in the second game, uh, and a nice 58 in the third game. How would you sum up his series and then him going forward? Uh, did, did he do enough? Has he shown you enough? And how can we use him? I mean, awesome question. Okay, I'm going to come in and be very clear with my Banton bias. Like, I am a <laughs> massive fan of his personally. The Banton bias. Banton bias. There's, there's the name of, the, there's of the this name. episode. <laughs> But that said, I was pretty disappointed. He spoke very candidly after the second second ODI, I think it was, about struggling with adapting to batting fourth. He's used to it. You, you were spot on there, Dan. He's used to a new ball. He's used to coming out. Basically, he does the job, the exact job that Roy and Besto do for the England team, which is just absolutely smack it around early doors. He didn't really like batting at four. I I kind of see him as a real as a real perfect sub for Roy and Bear. So I almost want him to be in that position. Like he isn't ready clearly for the England 11, but if Royal Bear got injured, I would love to see a straight swap of him coming in. I think that would work. What didn't work is batting him at four um, because he just wasn't comfortable with it. I'm very glad that he did get a score on the board, got his first ODI 50. He looked really nicely strike rate of 113 in that third ODI. And he was really seeing the ball. Well, but I think it's fair to say, Dan, that he was scratchy in the other two in the other two innings, and he he looked out of place. You could tell it wasn't his usual position. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think you've summed him up as a as a player and going forward pretty perfectly there. You know, in the was it the third? It might have been the third ODI. Yeah, England were forty four for three, and he's coming in, um, and that's not where you want him. As you said, you want him at the top where there's no real pressure or anything. The ball's coming on nicely. It's still shiny and new. The field's in because, um, you know, we're in the power play. And let him get 30, 40 or even go on to get a ton. But when he has to sort of, you know, watch himself and worry about the fact he's coming in at four and think, I can't lose my wicket here. You could tell he wasn't very comfortable with that at all, was he? And, and, and that left him, yeah, scratching around. I think he's one of those batsmen that is just maybe a bit out of nick, maybe a bit too early in the season for him to really give a judgment. And I'm like you said, Chuffy got a 50 because that will stop the talks of, oh, where's he up for it? Because he, he is, definitely. I just don't think yes. he's using right at all this series. And, you know, they're, they're trying to force him into the best partnership in, opening partnership in one-day cricket around the world at the minute. And they can't do that. So they've done well to get him in the team and he's shown what he can do. But I just going forward, that isn't the place for him. I couldn't agree more. What's interesting is that he actually came in at number five in the third game, which is when he got his score. And wasn't it wonderful, Dan, to watch Morgan and Banton back together? That was that was experience. That was, you know, simultaneously the present England and the future England. And Mm. it was really exciting. Like that that middle order three of Morgan, Banton, Billings is just exciting. And I know we're rightly talking about about Banton being out of place there and we'd both prefer to see him open. And I totally agree with that. But isn't it strange how he was dropped a bit lower and he got a higher score? I almost in a sense see him as like the opener or bring him in maybe at the six and just, you know, really smack it later in. Yes. He doesn't like, like that four. I like that a lot. Your six or open because six could come in with 10 overs left yep. and he's got license and opening he's got license we need he needs that license whatever I totally that agree is. he needs that he can't be coming in at you know 
50 for three, 50 for two and, and nerdling it around a bit because, you know, England are on the back foot. That's, that's not what he's there for at all. I, I think the movement in the in the order in general. So in the in the first ODI, Morgan's come in at six there, two, four, yeah, six. In the second ODI, he came in again at six. And then in, in the third, he came in at four. He was obviously there doing that to give the young batsman a chance. And didn't that just give the whole air of this series like a bit, you texted me, I think, intra-squaddy. It was like, oh, Morgan doesn't need to prove anything to us. He's our greatest one-day player. So he's like, ah, it's a bit early for me. Tom, do you want to go in? You know, get some overs under? And that just gave this air of real half cricket, didn't it? Yeah, I I think that's that's so correct because... Yeah, I can totally understand why we're doing that. Although these games are competitive, it was more of an experiment with the squad. But what I do love is when Morgan realised, okay, Roy's gone for one, Bairstow for, um, you know, Vince is out here. He bought himself in, and my goodness, did he take responsibility? He took the game by the scruff of his neck. He got an 84 ball, 106, exceptionally good and he is just one of those players that always looks class. I'm really disappointed by him. I know he doesn't always get these big scores, but once he gets going, he converts a lot. Do you think that's correct? That's just anecdotal, yeah. but I feel like he gets a lot of hundreds. Yeah, I think it feels like that, doesn't it? Or I don't worry about the stats in front of us. It does feel like that. And oh gosh, I love Owen Morgan. He's definitely, I said it earlier, he's our greatest one day player, our greatest yep. one day captain. And that's not just because of the World Cup. That obviously helps on his resume, but... The way I remember when he first started playing, the way he changed the way England could bat and the shots, the reverse sweep felt like his at the time when he first came into the team. And now you know, everyone can play it. So, yeah, he was just there to sort of anchor this team. And I'll tell you what's really interesting. And you don't see this as a, as a, as a fan watching on telly or probably even at the ground is his captaincy. Because in the third ODI, which England lost, like, pretty comfortable by seven wickets. There's only one ball left, but, you know, they weren't bowling that well. He was off the field for the most part of, of their bowling innings. Um, and Moeen was was captain, setting the field, deciding when the bowlers come on. He even There was a no ball at one point for not having the fielders inside the circle. So Moeen's a bit raw on that captaincy front, but I think it showed us how good Morgan is as a captain and knowing when to bowl people and knowing the field settings and putting a game to bed that should have been put to bed. Uh, when you put 328 on the board um i've mentioned him there can we chat about moeen please um what's going on i love him i want him to do well more than any england player um and he just looks horribly horribly out of sorts i saw i heard rather kp on comms in the first odi moeen this is really rough by the way so apologies so i might have the, the proper one if you're listening Moeen got four for in Australia in 2017 or 2018 in one day, four for 40. Since then, he's taken, I think it was 10 for 1,000, averaging over 70 with the ball. Um, he took no wickets this entire series. His captain, he was given the vice captaincy at the start. And, you know, I thought, oh, that's nice. And then he actually had to try and do that in the third ODI and it failed dramatically. He... He didn't trouble the scorers at all in the in the, in in the whole series. What do we do with Moeen? What's going on, Glenn? Give me give me your thoughts, please. 
You know, I was almost hoping, Dan, because I did a little quick bit of look at quick bit of looking at his um his record in this series. I was hoping you wouldn't mention him <laughs> because because <laughs> we have to really dive deep into this now. I know because like I'm a massive fan of Moeen. I think he brings so much to the England team. His character, he's got class. He's clearly a really really high quality player. But looking at this series as a whole, you're you're just right because he hasn't. <laughs> he's got one run. He's got zero wickets. And I, I mean, that stat you gave about his his average, his recent average is, is catastrophic. And I do think the nail in the coffin is you you've already mentioned it, his bowling, nowhere. His batting, it's just it's just not where in any realm of where it should be right now. He just doesn't look like he knows what to do with the bat. And it's this it's the vice captaincy that was the nail in the coffin for me because if he had just come in as vice captain, as you mentioned, with Morgan off the field and just carried England to a to a really tight win, you know, it wouldn't have mitigated his, you know, the, the the disappointments he had with the ball and bat, but it at least would have said like there's a reason he's in the team because he's a senior pro and he's he knows what he's doing. But he even managed to mess up the vice captaincy. <laughs> I think he's he's just in every department he was lacking this series, and it's just a massive shame because we we both are real big fans of him, and it was just. It was just, you know, a shocker of a series. You can't put it any other way. Yeah, and it, and you know, he was dropped from the test side. He's spoken about his want to get away from the game and kind of refresh mentally and physically, and that's and that's great. And then as this season came around pre-pandemic, everyone was talking about him coming into the team and excited for that. And you know, he's 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 a he's a banker in that one day team. So you're like, let him get some form there. And I'm, I felt like as soon as he gets a bit of form in that and he gets a knock or a few wickets, that's when the test whispers happen and he might get brought in again. And then to see him not even be able to perform in the one-day shirt just shows how far away he is from that test squad and how far away he might be from this ODI squad soon without a few performances. Now, he, like you said, he's high up in the hierarchy. I think he's a very well-liked member of the squad. And I saw uh, a, a text come in on, on the BBC commentary, uh, the text commentary saying, I'd keep Moeen even if his batting isn't there, I'd keep him for his bowling. His spin's useful. And that's fine, batting at eight or nine, and he might get a knock. We've got so much batting that I don't mind him being just a bowler. But his bowling's just not there either. Um, you look at Rashid, who shone again in this in this series. He is such a useful bowler, a great senior, a great professional of the game, skillful, um, always comes in when you need him to. And you see the way he spins ball. I know he's a, a wrist spin, he's got more variations, but Moeen just seems so one-paced, one-dimensional with the ball. And, you know, on non-turning surfaces, he's pretty, he's, there's no variation. And he, he'll get, he'll get a, a non for like, he might go for 60, 50. And that's just not good enough. If you need someone to hold an end, we need that below 50. Or we need someone as a strike ball to take wickets. So I don't think his place is at risk, but I, I don't see him staying in the team much longer if his if his game stays where it is and he just looks a little bit disinterested yeah i think the same way we're talking about this this vince denley um you know block when they both get into the those 20s i feel like that's kind of clouding moeen's entire game right now it just it feels like he's fallen out of love with the game i think and you can see that on the field he's but he bowled 25 overs across the three games and didn't get a wicket he went about three and over in the first two games but then he was the most expensive bowler he went a 7.29 in that mm. final game i mean like you know seven overs for 51 no maidens no wickets it's not the moeen we know and love yeah it's a player that's struggling with confidence and 
Yeah, I can only echo what you've said, Dan. I mean, it's it's almost, again, it's this situation whereby we really want him in the team. And on paper, looking at, you know, looking across his career, he really should be in the mix. But if you look at the most recent, you know, year or even the, the last week, he would be if you I think we're going to come on to Jason Roy next. But if you looked at each individual um, purely at stats from this series, he was probably the biggest disappointment. And with so many young players trying to show themselves in this series, you expect the senior players to do their job. And I feel like they pretty much all did. Morgan, Roy will come on to Bairstow, uh, Willie even was very good. I'd call him a senior player now. I think we should chat about him as well. Um, you know, if one of the senior players, if one of the debutants showed up, like if Mahmood or, um, you know, Banton batted or bowled like he did, we'd be like, right, obviously not good enough. Let's let him go. So, it's worrying and it's it's such a shame because you know what Moeen can do and I think we're all willing him to to find that bit of form again and you know be the bowler and the batsman you know we all know and love in both formats hopefully hopefully yeah I, I've got to agree and yeah just talking about senior pros letting letting themselves down a little bit yeah give me give me your just just quickly just a little bit on Jason Roy where's your mind yeah. at with him well that partnership of Roy and Bairstow is unbreakable, in my opinion, as long as they're like the broad situation. If they're fit, they're playing and yep. they are fantastic. Roy, what do you get? 24, a duck and one. OK, so 25 runs across the three games. He looked in some proper Jason Roy April form. He was mm-hmm. hard hands, really pushing at the ball. I remember in the test matches last year, he would just no foot movement just chuck his hands hard at the ball and looking like nicking off or getting bolt through the gate which is what happened one dismissal was a sort of skewed cover drive I don't ever doubt him as a player and I think he has that license as I spoke about earlier Banton at the top of the order to just do that and sometimes it doesn't come off I just think he looks in horrible early season form um, yeah I think I think I hope and think that's about it for him just some just some bad nick Yep, I'm going to agree with that. You know, we, we, we all know anyone who follows England's one day game knows how destructive and how, you know, incredibly aggressive he is. And Roy and Bairstow, the beauty of them batting together is if one of them fails, often the other doesn't. And they can take the game away from you within the first 15 overs. If they start off getting 10 and over, getting England up to 10 and over and, and above that in the opening, opening third of each game, like, they're just so good, and yeah, I, I wouldn't say that his, his place. It would be it would be wrong to say his place is in any way affected by this performance. Mm. I think you're right. It's early season, out and Nick, but it just looked lazy. What gets me about Roy is like objectively, like obviously I like what he brings to the England team. He really he scores fast, he scores quick, but he just sometimes looks a little bit lazy, and he sometimes looks like in, in batting terms, purely batting. And you, you said for one of the dismissals, it was a really, really poor shot, reaching outside off, footwork nowhere near it, hits the toe end of the bat and is caught. And yeah, maybe I feel like there was perhaps a little bit of, oh, well, I know my place isn't in doubt here. We're only playing Little Island. I don't really need to care. That was the, that is the, yeah. again, I didn't watch a lot of the matches, as in like in real time, but that's just sometimes the vibe I get with him, especially when, you know, as we said, coming into the test squad was unfortunately a disaster for him. I just, <laughs> he's so good at what he does. I think he can occasionally get complacent. That's my worry with Roy. Yeah. I, I, that's an interesting point. I'd not thought of actually um, his perhaps complacency because, you know, as we started this chat on, on the open partnership, I've just said, right, these two are locked in. So maybe he thinks that too. And maybe that's just the, what's going on around, 
around the change room at England. And I think he gets out really ugly. And, you know, it, you know, he didn't get out some particularly bad balls and he just, yeah, one, it was basically a wide that he chucked his bat at and he, he nicks off hard and he gets bold and the gap between bat and pad, you could park a bus in it. And I don't think that helps him because when that, when those shots come off and he, he makes a, a great 50, 100, something in the middle of there, he looks unbelievable. And like you said, he takes the game away. And I think that's exactly what Bairstow did in, in the second ODI with his 82 of 41 balls. Um, an unbelievable knock tied the, tied the quickest 50 whilst wickets fell around him there and you know we were 98 for 3 131 for 4 when he got dismissed his knock meant that um, Billings and Willie could finish that game off at, at a canter what, what, what surprised me a little bit from these you said you know one of the misses the other hits and that happened in the second ODI but I feel like for the first time in a while and this is perhaps because of Vince's and Banton's presence at three and four. We had a couple quick collapses, you know, 98 for three in the second ODI, um, 44 for three in the third ODI. We don't see this very often from from the openers. And, you know, maybe it's down to form. And if Root was in there, you know, Root, Root's very good at three in the one day game because he won't lose his wicket and he'll score a run a ball. But it was strange to see these early collapses in an ODI innings. I thought it was a bit unnerving. Yeah, it, it it spoke to it spoke to the I think lack of conviction that there was in that in that middle order that no one really except Morgan in that third game really came in and thought I am gonna win this game for England. It was just a lot of um, a lot of nothing really, uh, much of a muchness in there. Yeah. Yeah. So should as we get, as we said, we, should we get to the bowling? Let's have a that quick is exactly what I was bowling. Spans. Um, probably man of the series, but as you as we I think we spoke about at the top, his end of innings bowling, which we only got to see once. David Willey, now he started off the series with um his first five for an England colours and got England uh, Ireland down to twenty eight five. And then some great, really useful uh, runs with the bat in, in the second ODI, he made forty seven, and in the third ODI, he made fifty one. What do you make of him? Because he was dropped from the World Cup squad quite um you know, quite controversially, I'd say, because he'd been a senior member of the squad and always around the team, and then suddenly he was dropped. He's come back and sort of had a bit of a broad series, hasn't he? You know, you, how dare you drop me? But then in the third ODI, I think his bowling struggled toward, somewhat toward the end. So, you know, what do you, what do you think of him? There's a lot to like. I think he he bowls really he bowls really well, especially opening up. You know, bowling early. He. Uh, he really gives the, pro- the batsman a lot of problems, um, you know, with, with the way he comes into bowl. His batting is a bonus. I think he really can bat, and I think we all saw that. It was especially in the, I think it was in the um, in the final, in the final game. Like they just kept bowling it. Yeah, they just kept bowling it short, and mm. they just. It just um, there was he's so good on his legs. He got, he's got his 51, and they the island bowlers just couldn't figure out if they bowled it short anywhere near his upper body on the leg side. It's going into the Go stands. On. He can hit. He can yeah. hit a really big ball off the spinner. He, he the spinner ball right in the slot, and he hit a massive ball. And for your opening bowlers about like this, that's like you said, such a huge bonus. Yeah, he made it look like baseball. That's what I kept mm. thinking when I was watching him bat. He just. The way he he almost hit the ball a lot like Morgan, whereby he connects and it stays hit. So yeah, batting brilliant. 
yeah, bowling, there was there was a lot to enjoy. I wouldn't say he necessarily like blew me away, but you know, that five for obviously he really he really that mm. was when he turned up most in terms of bowling. But it is almost tainted a tiny bit by just the lack of control in that towards the end of that Ireland innings. Like I think you could say all of the all of the England bowlers are at fault there. But if you're looking at ten overs, uh, he had um, he went for seventy runs, only got one wicket. You know, economy of seven. Again, you know, I think he's a really good he's a really good pro, and he was unfortunate. You're quite right to point out that he didn't make it into the into the World Cup squad. That was the shock. That was the one that got everyone a couple of days before the tournament started. So yeah, I think he would. You, would you say he was our best bowler? Do you think that's fair, Dan? In this series, yeah, yeah. Oh, without a shadow, uh, him yeah. and Rashid definitely two different bowlers, so we can't compare the two. Willie at the top of an innings is fantastic because he gets that little bit of swing. He's a left armer, so right right handers pads are in danger, and the outside edge of a left hander is in danger. And at the top of the innings, that's exactly what you want, and it it proved fruitful twice in the first two ODIs. And then the reason he was left out of the World Cup squad, I think, was England's sort of concern about him at the end of an innings. You're going to have to have him bowl 10 overs, probably. You don't want him bowling six at the start and then nothing else. You're going to have to find four overs from somewhere there. So he's going to bowl his allotment of 10. That means some death bowling. We didn't see it in the first two ODIs because of the states of the game. And in the third ODI, I remember him saying on commentary, when Ireland still needed, you know, seven, eight runs and over, when he came on to bowl, you know, this was his chance to kind of show everyone that they were wrong to drop him um, and that he is a good death death ball bowler uh, and he just uh, <sighs> do you know what I mean I'm, I'm lost for particular yeah. descriptive words on it he's not got much variation I don't see him dropping a slow but he's got a great Yorker but when he misses that and it's either length you know in the slot or a Yorker that often gets put away and you know you see your Currens coming in with you know um, changes of pace and your Woods and Archers with genuine pace and the ability to bounce people out I struggle to see a place for Willie at the end of an innings. At the start, he's unbeatable. And his batting's so useful. But oh, I wouldn't be saying this if the third ODI didn't go the way it did. And I'd have said, man of the series, get him in the team. Yeah. But there's a few question marks now. Yeah, no, I think that's right. What did, what did you think about Mahmood? Another quick, yeah, I like giving, giving a decent account of himself, I'd say. Yeah, I like Mahmood. Uh, quick... Um, you know, not too reckless. Let's have a look at his figures really quick. Uh, what did he get? In? Well, I want to see what he got in the last ODI because that was the one where, you know, everyone's bowled 10. None for 58. He was the most economical of all the bowlers um, mm-hmm. in that game. So none for 58. Second ODI, two for 45. Again, going at five and over. That's absolutely spot on. And first ODI, two for 36. He's, you know what, made a great account for himself. And I was only looking at that then because I didn't really notice him, not in a bad yeah. way, but in a way that I was like, that's what I'd expect a Wood or an Archer to do, one of the pros who have played for so long. So that's got to be a great sign, hasn't it, that I wasn't noticing and, and trying to pick him apart. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't like, you know, jump out with a five foot. But what he did is he got wickets. He was pretty economical. And he bowled, you know, reasonably consistently until, you know, as we said a couple of times that it just kind of fell apart towards the end of the final ODI. But yeah, I would say, I, I would say he's in the mix. I think I, I really like his style and yeah, they were an intriguing, intriguing opening duo mm. um, of quicks. And I think it shows the potential in this England side. They're not necessarily banging on the door, no. but 
There's they're, options. They're, they're knocking gently, bearing in mind yeah. there's a World Cup four years away. So I think yeah. the mood's definitely going to be there or thereabouts. Don't know how old Willie's going to be by then. I, I doubt he's got another World Cup in him. Maybe, maybe he does. I don't know. And then, you know, your Bantons, and we've already spoken about them. They're gently knocking rather than barging the door down. Should we, should we have a look at the players that missed out? So quite really, the test match started today. Day of recording is, is Wednesday the 5th. After Tuesday the 4th, the ODI finishing pretty late. It's all a bit weird, isn't it? Um, having two <laughs> squads going on. going on at once. There's a lot of cricket to try and get our heads around. Should we have a look at the players that are in that test bubble at the minute, in that test squad, who would have been in this team and were in the World Cup final team and see if we can really give a case for any of them to be dropped or someone to replace yeah. them? Let's have a look. Great. So do you have the World Cup? Should we go through the World Cup final? I do. 11? Let's and go then, through it. So, you know, who's missing? Right. So the England's um, World Cup team for the final against New Zealand was Roy Bairstow. Both of us in there. Root, Morgan, Stokes, Butler, Wokes, Plunkett, Archer, Rashid, Wood. Oh, there's a lot of talent in there. So many good players in there. So straight off the bat, Vince, bang, you're off. You've nicked oh. off and Root's in. Okay. And then... Well, Stokes has got gets his place. So who who does that that drops probably Banton out, doesn't it? Yep. And then in that middle order, Butler takes the gloves. So Bairstow is keeping this this uh, ODI series. So you're bringing in Butler, but you're bringing in for his batting, and he's probably the better keeper out of the two anyway. And and Bairstow is in for his batting. That then leaves you with the bowlers, isn't it? Pretty much. And, so and spinners. Yep, so Wokes would be the Wiley, um, especially as an all-rounder, mm. bats well, low down. That probably Wokes the like does for more like. for me in one-day cricket than Willie does, especially at the death. Yep, I would totally agree. Then we've got Plunkett, who I always find really interesting. But I believe he's... I'm not sure he's retired, but there's no way he's in the... The fact he wasn't in the squad suggests he's not being looked at. He's too old to be looked at for the future, isn't he? So that could be that could be the Willie pushing pushing into the team. Yeah, there you go. That spot. Yeah. That that, um, actually, no, that would be a good place because Plunkett's batting was kind of useful. And whereas Plunkett was one of those middle-over bowlers that would, would get wickets at really important times in the sort of 30th over, Willie's maybe an opener, maybe you swap him with Wokes. There's definitely a place there. I agree, totally agree. And then we've got the real, the real fast-fast. Rashid obviously keeps his place. And then we've got Archer and Wood, who, you know, Archer, he is he is in the team. Wood, fitness dependent, but I, I haven't seen anyone shoving Wood out of the England team from this series. No. I, I, I think even in the batting, we, we glossed over that because there isn't anyone there pushing any of those batsmen out. I think all of the no test teams will come straight back into that ODI team if there was a World Cup tomorrow. Obviously, England get that luxury of playing Ireland and there's a series coming up against Australia where they'll play three one-day internationals. And it's going to be fascinating to see what they do there because we've got obviously a lot more competent opponents and the tests won't be going on so we'll have those test players available so we're interested to see who does come back in and if they rotate or not yeah absolutely i think we have got a lot of really really high quality one day players and i think for all its disappointments i don't know if that's quite the right word but for all it, it underwhelmed i feel like this island series underwhelmed but it still spoke to the talent that we have if you're looking at that test team i mean We've got a really strong second 11 and I feel like mm. there is competition for every place. But the bottom line is no one is being pushed out as a result of this. 
yeah, I think that should be our summary of that series pretty much. There was a chance for players to do that and I don't think any of them took it, you know, by the scruff of the neck. We'll say Mahmood and Banton are gently knocking yep. patiently. Um, they might have rung the doorbell once, but they're not they're not really hammering in. And the rest of them, uh, they're at the wrong house. They're, they're knocking on the wrong door, unfortunately. <laughs> exactly. I think Banton, yeah, he's, it's like the COVID, the classic COVID um, social distance meeting whereby you have a relative you shouldn't really be hanging out with in person. So you're sat outside <laughs> on the phone, peeping out through the window at the selectors, having a chat. Uh, do you want to just should we have a quick word for Ireland? Yeah, I think we should, because I was ready... Uh, during the start of their batting innings in the second ODI. That was on Saturday. I was thinking about recording this tonight, ready to go in on them and just say, what the hell is going on there? And then obviously the result last night has changed that a lot. And I think, you know, they are, as I said at the start, in a real period of transition. It's unfortunate that their time rising in the international spotlight has come as a lot of their their big players, your Porterfield at the top of the order, Boyd Rankin, uh, are retiring. They're too old now. You've only got really Sterling and Balburnie who I recognise from that team. And, you know, that win will, will spur them on massively. It get, gets them 10 points in the new ODI league that the ICC came up with uh, yeah. on the back of a fag packet last week. And um, they look great in that game. And Sterling, I was happy to see because I see him in county cricket and he's a great senior. It. And I know he's got a knock of that in him and it, it was good to see. You know, did anyone stand out for you, Glenn? What do you think of the team as a whole? Great question. So Sterling, yeah, I'm so glad he, uh, as you said, he hits a hard ball. (laughs) He's a great player and there's no one quite like him in the county game. He reminds me of Jason Roy. I think that's probably the easy, perhaps lazy comparison, you know, Mm. goes out there and really swings the bat. What I liked is there were some real quality young players. So Tector stood out to me. Um, really, really young, you know, 20 years old or so, and just really showed a lot of talent and showed a lot of composure at the end at the end of the Island innings to win the game for them. I think probably the series standout in terms of consistency um, has to be Camper, yeah. who who bowled brilliantly, batted excellently, especially in the in the first first two games. So you're looking at his scores: 59 first game, an excellent 68 to rescue Ireland in the second game. Um, and then yeah, didn't didn't even get to to bat in that in that second in the, in the third game. So yeah, there was there was some young talent in there, and it was nice to see the likes of Kieran O'Brien um, still, still going, playing, still, still going, going, still winning well, matches. Here's, here's a fun one. So he hit the winning runs last night, uh, Tuesday yep. night, um, and in 2011 when they beat us in the World, Ireland beat us uh, in the World Cup. Uh, I think it was in Bengaluru. They got this total of 329 was one more run than that 328 back uh, nine years ago. And he was hitting the winning run. So he's still going really strong, isn't he? That's extraordinary. Yeah. So it was nice to see to see um, those those old faces in the squad. It's a period of transition. You're spot on. Yeah, I think what a lot of journos had to do after the third game was rip up their notes because obviously it would have been just lambasting this extremely disappointing island team who didn't really turn up in batting, especially for the first two games. I think bowling, there was a lot to like. And I think they're an exciting team. I I guess the problem is we've got to remember that this is is the second string England team. And I do feel if it was our actual ODI team, we would have blown them away. I, I, Mm -hmm. I do strongly think that. But that said, there were positives to take out for it. And to be honest, getting two centurions in that in that third game is not easy. 
um you know Baberni got 113 sterling <laughs> classic island you know sterling is going he's flying straight rate of 110 he's got 142 and he gets run out and you, could, <laughs> you could see the annoyance on his face coming off the pitch like that does seem to happen um with this island team like they, I, I feel like they have a tendency a tendency to kind of self-implode but you know the pressure was on them even even although they were in the driving seat because they batted so well for the majority of that innings in the third in the third game they were still under extreme pressure and you could see that because it was you know it was one off three and then suddenly it was one off two and it's yeah. in the last over and it's still a really competitive game but no Tector and Kieran O'Brien 29 and 20, 21 respectively got their heads down batted brilliantly and yeah i, I it just switched the entire perspective of this series that excellent win because they beat the world champions and yeah. first 11 or not that's away from home what an achievement and congratulations to them on that yeah definitely i think they earned a lot of plaudits from it because like you said i think they were about to get they were about to get lambasted um if they hadn't performed like that and they're going home as the winners in my opinion from this series they've learned a lot about their squad um young players got three one day internationals away from home against the world champions under their belt how that's invaluable knowledge and time out on the field and their batting was sorry in those first two ODIs it was a state there was a collapse and then no one you know they were as opposed to swinging their bat they were just surviving and it was boring let's be honest Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I don't blame them for hanging in because there's no point in getting bowled out for 50 and you might as well get 180 on the board and they had England squeaking at a couple of occasions and, and fair play to them for batting as long as they could as opposed to just giving up on them and then that gave their bowling nothing to look at in those first two ODIs, really. A couple of flurries, and then ultimately they didn't have enough runs to defend. And then that yeah. third ODI, they had, England could have got 400 plus. They were going at seven and a bit and over uh, at 190 for three. And they limited them to 328. Um, so I think shout out to the bowlers there. And then it was great to see them actually attack and batting because there was something about those first two innings that were just so... So sad and boring. Um, and I know they lost early wickets, but it looked like none of them could get off the square at one point. Yeah. It, we've, we've all been in games where, where, where the opposition, when we've been playing, the opposition is just that step up better than us. And it's just, you don't know whether to stick or twist. You bat out, as you said, you bat out slow and steady, try and get 100 on the board. Or do you kind of try and hit out of trouble? And they kind of did neither. And and then number seven, Camphor was top scorer in both of the first two games, which really speaks to the, to the insecurities around that opening order. But I liked what I liked about their bowling is they they always spread the wickets around. Um, you know, no one really leapt out of their bowling attackers. You know, really exceptional. I can't really caught my eye. The passion you could see the passion was mm. there. But they spread out the wickets and they took wickets at the right times. None of England's two successful run chases were flawless. And let's just not forget they chased a huge score in that final game. You know, 328 is a mammoth total away from home. And you know, the pitch did get better as the day went on. Um, the commentary team picked up on that. It really flattened out a bit, but they still had to get a lot of runs. And you're looking at the scoring rates, and the vast majority of them are over 100. So they, yeah, they really did exceptionally. And yeah, positives to take. You know, I, I think th- th- there's a team, there's a team there. There's lots of good things yeah. within that team. It's about getting them in the right order and getting some consistency in the batting because that's what they were yeah. they were clearly lacking. Camphor's got to go up the order. There's no way he's a number seven the way he batted. He looks like a five or a four even. Um, And his bowling's so useful. Little gave Bairstow a big send-off in the second ODI. (laughs) I saw that. I like that. I find those send-offs so funny because I'm sure you're fuming, right, that he's knocking you around the park. 
But my guys strike at 200 mostly off your, you know, high 70 mile an hour short balls. I, I wouldn't start mouthing off. Um, I don't know. But yeah, there's there's a lot to look at in that island team that looks good. And isn't it amazing how one result and one game can change the whole sort of rhetoric and conversation that goes around your team after a series? Because if they'd lost that game, it would have had a lot to say about how bad they were. Maybe found a few glimmers. But I think it's given everyone a nicer and probably more representative reflection of Ireland as a team at the minute. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're, you're really right on the point there. And yeah, I'm glad. I think the, the problem with the first two games where it was just flat, it was really lacking some energy. And all the energy that should have been in those opening two games was just pushed into the third. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And, you know, it was amazing just, as I said, it was such a frustration to miss out on watching it live. But it was great just checking my phone and seeing... Ireland keep pace with, with with a very high scoring rate across the 50 overs and you know to go for any 50 over match to go down to the last two balls it's just really really good it's entertaining yeah and I think everyone liked that and honestly I'm glad Ireland got a positive result because it yeah. would do so much good for Cricket Ireland yeah I was too and there was one point I think in the first and second ODI where someone took a wicket I think it was Ireland with four or five down and didn't celebrate the commentator could get up for it I think they no. even they were shocked at you know someone took a catch and like, oh he's gone and I was like oh god right I'm off I've got better things to do yeah. it was dull unfortunately and like you said luckily all the energy was pushed, in, pushed into that last game and it was giving us you know an entertaining series and you know everyone's learned a lot from it and like I said it was unexpected because I was so focused on the test matches against the West Indies I was like oh gosh there's a there's a one day series um, so I don't think we're playing against Pakistan I think that's just a test series I might have to check that but it's definitely Australia are hoping to come over, you know, COVID pending. Um, yeah. And we'll give us three 2020s and three ODIs to watch. And, you know, hopefully look at an England team at full strength and we can probably contextualise that more. It's amazing that that first ODI was our first ODI on home soil since the World Cup final. Oh. Um, an amazing stretch of time over a year. Um, and like you said, we still look like we have great depth and that we've we still have a great team, don't we? So... You know, a, a, a weird few days, a weird series. I'll, I'll remember this one, I think, obviously because of the lockdown, but just a bit odd, all in Peculiar. all. Peculiar. And I think we were right when we mentioned a couple of podcasts ago that the atmosphere of uh, uh, <laughs> an empty Rose Bowl for a one day isn't isn't where it needs to be to make this more of a spectacle. Um at the same, simultaneously, it was such a shame there wasn't people there to witness that third game. But you can tell it had a bit of a training match feel to the yeah. series. And, uh, and it's so heightened by the short form of the game because, yeah. you know, Morgan hit and Willie hit some huge sixes and there was just nothing to get excited. This ball's gone miles. Yeah. And there's just no... <laughs> and we, we said this. We said it a few podcasts ago. We said, imagine Morgan hitting one into the, into the stand and hitting one of those plastic chairs. You get the thud of the seat folding down. And, you know, I think Charles Dagnall was just hard. Couldn't get himself going. He was just like, yeah, six. I was like, bloody hell, Charles. Help me when out. Daggers, <laughs> when Daggers is flat, you know, there's issues. Um, <laughs> just two quick things on that. Number one, when there's a huge six, you want to see pints flying. <laughs> yeah, right. Not going to happen in empty stadium. You want to Number see someone two. trying to grab it or falling over their misses or, <laughs> yeah. you know, punching a stranger by accident. No, someone in a Smurf costume catching the ball <laughs> in one hand while sipping his pint. But, um, and the, the second thing was, you can't get much more village than than fielders having to go fetch a six themselves. That never <laughs> 
gets hoofed into the back of a grandstand and the, the poor guy out at Long On has to go walk up 50 flights and go pick it up. Well, I'll tell you what, I was at um, I was at the Hampshire-Sussex game over the weekend. I got in on a little cheeky little press pass. Yeah, so I was at nice. some live cricket. I can't really mention this sooner. But um, there were a couple sixes and they had to go and fetch it from, you know, where the fans would be on the bank. And every, they didn't they don't do this in the international games, but at county level now, every hour, I think it is, there's a hygiene break. They all go wash their hands. And because there was no one there, I could hear the umpire go, right, lads, wash your hands, please. <laughs> and off they all went to wash their hands. Um, I'd like that in the international game. Why, why isn't that there? Hygiene breaks. Maybe, maybe that could, we could, we could get a, get a petition going and uh, get, get a couple of thousand signatures on that. That is, that is funny, isn't it? And it just gives it a very surreal feel. And yeah, it adds to this sense that it's like, obviously it's different, but yeah, stuff like that, it's hard to be uber competitive and have this really tight clash going on. And then the umpire's like, sorry, kids, you know, 15 seconds, hum your favorite song, warm water and soap. And it kind of just kills the momentum that builds up in a game. But that said, it's astonishing how, how cricket has, touch wood, so far really worked under yeah. lockdown. And the test series have been exceptional. I'm so excited for the for the Pakistan for the rest of the Pakistan first test. And yeah, kudos to to the ECB and for all the clubs and players and for the travelling teams to Ireland, mm. West Indies. We thanked, but the same to Pakistan because a lot of sacrifices have been made to make this happen. And oh, I love that you snuck in, Dan. I can't believe yes. you didn't tell me. Yeah, you know, I'm on the I'm on the press thing, and you know, they're like fill out a form if you want to come. And I just filled it out, put my name, Cal, representing Cal Corner, obviously. <laughs> and uh, I was on, it was day two um and it was a great day of cricket it really was it, it was eerie without fans there to be within the stadium itself um but the sound of um leather on willow was fantastic and sussex won on day three in the end so every, even better it was a close game low scoring game but a close game nonetheless and yeah it, it's great to see county cricket going ahead as well and people working so hard to get us all going and to watch it on telly is fantastic and to have the county game sort of going on in the background. Obviously, fans can't be there at the minute, but it's great to see. And to be able to talk about this now, you know, is so much fun and a great distraction at the minute, isn't it? It is. And you know what? Two months ago, we couldn't really see this happening. I know a lot has changed and a lot will change. And if there is, you know, just for a quick example, we've seen the MLB and even MLS back here in the US really struggling with a lot of a lot of teams having to drop out of preseason tournaments, even league games, because because of outbreaks within teams. And so far, it hasn't been that bad. I think it's been very well managed. I think the players and the administrators, we don't give particularly a huge amount of credit to because it's hard to, you know, who is the face of Hampshire or Sussex or Somerset. Yeah. But behind the scenes, people are working extremely hard to get cricket going. And we are thankful for that as fans and supporters. And, you know, it felt with the football coming back, it felt all a little bit dirty because they're all in it for the broadcasting money, which is, you know, that's fine. That's, that's how the world works. And, Cricket, the ECB at the international level was the same. They were set to lose hundreds of millions if these tests weren't playing. But to see county games back and it's nice. The finances of the clubs are helped by this, but it's just nice to see that. It's like no one's watching it really, Um, but it's still there getting played. And yeah, to to get it organised is fantastic, and it's all great to see going on. should we have a look at tweets of the week, Glenn, as, as we wrap yeah, this one up? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, um, let's, let's wrap it I've up with that. I've a lot then. this week, actually, because, and as I said to you before we started recording, I was ready to sort of go in on Ireland and this whole series and why it was there. 
but they played really well in that last game. And a lot of the tweets I favorited were from those first um, <laughs> couple ODIs. So I'll leave those there because, you know, time's changed. Um, my favorite was from Ben Jones. Uh, ben Jones Cricket is a cricket uh, analyst. He works all over the place in Australia um, and in the UK. He tweeted at, at probably 28 for five. Uh, in the first ODI, eco-warrior David Willey ensuring we won't need to waste power on the floodlights. Impressive holistic approach to environmentalism. And, you know, David Willey's you know, <laughs> he's got a green finger and he was looking after the environment there at the Aegeus Bowl. Um, it was hilarious that the best day weather-wise of the English summer on that first ODI was done before the floodlights were even necessary. Um, it was a gorgeous day on the south coast. Uh, second one I've got uh, is from Jeff Lemon Spore. He's a cricket commentator for ABC. Again, another Aussie. I am shocked, truly shocked, to find James Vince nicking off for a stylish 25. <sighs> Pretty spot on, wasn't it, really? And that was, I think, in the first. It might have been the second, so he just repeated it for the rest of the rest of the series, really. And thank you, James. But you know, you you head back to Hampshire and and, and stay there if you don't mind. That is hilarious. Great stuff, Glenn. Um, that was the ODI series. We said it wasn't going to be great, and for a moment it looked like that. And then it was. And there was a lot of stories coming out of it again. So, you know, a lot to look forward to in that ODI squad. Oh, absolutely. I think, yeah, hopefully, thank you for people listening to this. Hopefully we gave you a, a bit of insight into where the one-day team, our, our opinion at least, of where the one-day team's at, which is a lot of potential. I think, um, yep, our overall Ireland Ireland can be proud um, of their of their efforts, especially with that exceptional win. And yeah, it, it it looked like it was fizzling out. It looked like it was a firework that no one expected to go off, and then someone gave it a kick. <laughs> and it was like the start of the Hobbit, and he just started flying around, and no one really know what to do with themselves. Uh, so that's kind of my bizarre metaphor for this series. That's a great. Uh, that's probably a great way to serve this series, mate. <laughs> yeah. So we we had something to talk about, and. We will be back with the with an analysis of the first test match against Pakistan, the, the first day of which just happened. Obviously, ended curtailed by bad light, as is British tradition. We'll get that, into that because well, they, it was sunny for, for half week. an hour and they weren't playing. <laughs> and then they came out and it rained. And the England players were playing head tennis. And we could have been out watching some cricket. We'll come to that all in due course. Oh, that will be you guys uh, on Monday after the test match. And yeah, it looks like an interesting one. It's weird we've got a day's worth of context to try and not talk about now. But Pakistan yes. look really good. They look really, really good. But we'll come to that next week. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, and we, yeah, we'll see you next week for the England-Pakistan review. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.